I don't know about you, but usually the night before, Monday night, I have this feeling of, actually Sunday night, let's start back there. Sunday night after church, I have this feeling of, ah, you know, finally get to relax a little bit. The duties are, are over. We have a family tradition that goes back 22 years. We first came to Lynchburg, we used to get pizza every Sunday night. Uh, We don't normally eat before Sunday night church. I don't know how you guys do that. You go home, you have lunch. After you have lunch, um, usually by the time you're ready to start church again, I'm not hungry, but I'm famished after church. So it's easy. You pick up pizza. We've been doing that for like 20-some years. So that's kind of the uh, exhale uh, all the sermon duties are over. Everything presses, presses, presses toward uh, toward Sunday. Lots of duties on Sunday, and then Monday morning, you're still kind of basking in that. All right, you know, it's not not Tuesday yet. Tuesday, Wednesday, beyond usually starts the sermon prep. You're marching back toward uh, toward Sunday again. So Monday morning starts. Not a lot of pressure. Then a bunch of admin stuff happens during the day, and and then as the day creeps on, I start thinking about about Grace and Granite. I start thinking about meeting with with you guys. I can't always say that there's this thing in my my heart that says, "Man, I get to get up at three thirty or four a.m." You know, on Tuesday morning. But that, if I do have that feeling, honestly, it's usually mitigated and and it subsides when I think about. Uh, the fellowship that we get to have uh, in the Word as we start the day. Um, and uh, I don't know how you think about about Grace and Granite. Um, in one sense, there's no one else I'd rather spend my morning with than the Lord. So on Tuesday mornings, I get up earlier than normal, so I can do a little bit of that. But I don't know about you, but you know, 30 minutes with the Lord is just not enough for me for the day. And um, But if there's anyone other than the Lord I'd want to, to start my day with, it would be my wife, and then you guys are third on the list, all right? So <laughs> number three is actually a, a good thing. I can remember hearing Pastor Brody years ago saying that he told Judy, you're number two in my life. And um, that's a really, really good place to be as long as the Lord is number one. And if the Lord's number one, it's okay to be farther farther down on the you know on the list. Um, so any feelings I have about uh, getting up early and feeling the pressure of the week, um, the Lord pushes aside when I get to think of of seeing you all. Open your Bibles to Psalm 14. We'll we'll read the word together. This is a familiar psalm. Starts in a familiar way, anyway. And um, it's sad. It's also true. Explains a lot of things you see in the world. Let's read it and then we'll pray. This is a psalm of David. It says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. That's a packed statement. Um, A person who denies God is a fool. No matter how smart they are, how many degrees they they have. Um, And notice where they say it. They say it in their heart. Um, So this is the innermost recesses of of who they are as a a person. Um, And then that comes out in their lives. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. So... What they're saying in their hearts, what you say in your heart, what you treasure in your heart, where your heart is, um, then that's going to come out in your life, which is why you're to keep your heart with all diligence, why you hide God's word in your heart. Um, scripture has that, that constant uh, place of, of uh, or constant target, I should say. Um, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Here he is coming out in his life. Um, there is no one who does good. And where is that uh, 
a common phrase that you, you remember in a New Testament book that we're preaching through right now, yeah, Romans 3. There's none, there's no one who does good. Um, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of, of, of men to see if there's any who understands, who seek after God. And so here you have this personification of the Lord, like pictured like a, like a, like a king or a man looking out over his kingdom. In this case, it's the Lord looking down from heaven. We know the Lord doesn't have to come to the edge of heaven and look to see. He sees all. He's everywhere. He's, he's spirit. There's nothing the Lord doesn't know before it even happens. But this is the idea of the Lord surveying the earth. So this is a declaration to, to us. The Lord surveys the earth. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the sons of men, all of humanity, to see if there's any who understands. Again, does the Lord need to see if there's any who understands? I mean, is there anything that he doesn't know? He already knows. So this is for us. To see if there is any who understands, who seek after God. So, again, you, you have this psalm beginning with, Who's a fool? A fool is somebody who denies God in their heart, um, which goes all the way back to the fall. And then that's coming out of their life, the way they live. There's none who do good. And then the Lord declares, he surveyed everyone. And there's n- there are uh, to see if there's anyone who understands, to see if there's anyone who seeks after God. I mean, if you know there's a God, and you believe there's a God then you would be a fool not to seek him, right? I mean, if there is a creator that's bigger than you, that you're ultimately accountable to, then it would be a foolish thing not to try to appease that creator or seek that creator. But if you don't believe that there is one or you, you, you remake God in your own image, you tool around with who he is, like Romans 1 says, then you're not going to seek that one God. You're going to seek an idol. But the Lord's looking to see if there's any who understands, who seek after God, and here's the answer. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. What will you become if you turn aside from the Lord? You're going to get better on your own? I need to take a break from church. I need to take a break from the Bible. It's just too much. I need to take a break from prayer. I need some me time. Um, where's that going to lead you? Here's the answer. Turn aside from the Lord, you're going to become corrupt, and all of humanity has become corrupt. He repeats this. There is no one who does good, not even one. So this is the doubling down. That's the second time that he, that he says this. This is a condemnation of all mankind. Do all the wonders of wickedness not know? who eat up my people as they eat up bread and do not call upon the Lord. Think about that as, a, as, as this, this condemnation. I mean, we normally think of sin in, in a transgression, which is true. I do bad things. Do this, don't do that. But this is a sin of omission. I mean, the, the, the condemnation here is they do not call upon the Lord, people, in the world, do not call upon the Lord, and that is a gross sin. Uh, we fail to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength when we were created for Him, created to love Him. And so, where do you turn whenever you're in trouble? Where do you turn in life? That will reveal a lot. They do not call upon the Lord. Uh, there they are in great dread. For God is with the righteous generation. You would put to shame the counsel of the afflicted, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. Um, This condemnation of mankind, the fools that... Don't declare God is coming out in their life. The Lord surveying the earth. He finds none that seek him, none that understand. There's none that do good. 
And then David says, oh, that salvation, the salvation of Israel would, would come, out of, come out of Zion. Um, the longing for God to restore and do something, and there was a salvation that came out of Zion, wasn't there? It's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. When the Lord restores his captive people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. And so there is an already not yet. Um, the salvation of the Lord has come out of Zion. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. But um, the restoration of God's people, Israel, the restoration of the earth, the restoration of the kingdom that's coming in the kingdom has still not happened yet. Um, but it reigns in our hearts. So when you look in your heart, you don't say... There is no God. You look in your heart and you say there is God, which is why I'm at 622 in the morning seeking the Lord with other other brothers reading the word. It's a good place to be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have revealed yourself to us. Um, while some of that is, it works out in life is a mystery, Lord, um, meaning I can't always see what you're doing. I can see better in the rear view. Um, I walk by your promises, and looking out the front windshield, direct my car down the highway of life, if you will, by your promises. Your word tells me the direction to drive and what to do. and um, I can't always see what you're going to do, but I have all of your promises laid out in front of me. What you're going to do, I should say when you're going to do it. But in the, in the rearview mirror, Lord, I can see I think you were working here and you were working there. But even that is, uh, I'm of limited, limited vision. Um, and, and you're the one who brought us to, to your side. You're the one who came to us. Um, and we are so thankful for that. Lord, in one sense, we see the wicked. We see people outside of Christ. We see... Um, people that are suffering because of their sin. We have compassion. We want to, we want to see them come to, to saving faith, that they might have relief, that they might have forgiveness. Lord, we see the wicked railing against you, killing people and perverting little children with sexual bondage and other things, and indignation rises in our hearts, and we say, Lord, how long will this go on? When will you judge um, and then we look at our own hearts and we're reminded that uh, we're not following you because we're smarter than anybody else. It's your grace and we are humbled and we give thanks. Um, thank you that we were this way and now we treasure Christ in our hearts. May he be king. May the kingdom reign. May we obey um, in everything. May we conform our lives to your word um, as we live today. And may you teach us something new about yourself. May you... You help us uh, and bless us because we are your children. You are our good Father, and we love you, and we are thankful that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, open to page 290 in your books. So um, if anyone needs a Grace and Granite book, um, they're around here somewhere. Uh, does anyone need a Grace and Granite book? All right, we need one up here. So, do you know where they're at? Yes. Okay. All right, so, psych, um, we'll get you one uh, at the end. You can look off somebody else's. Sorry about that. Um, page 290. We're talking about choosing men for leadership. We're talking about church leadership, and we'll be in Acts 6. Uh, this is a narrative passage. You're always reminded when you're in a narrative passage, it's just telling the story. It's God telling the story. So I don't mean uh, to, to, to say narrative passages are, are less of lesser importance than the epistles which prescribe things to us. It's just a reminder when you're interpreting narrative, when you're reading a story like the Gospels, like the book of Acts, um, like Genesis... These are telling the story of God. This, the, God's the main character in the Bible, so it's telling us what he did. Uh, it's, it's revealing to us how he revealed himself. And I say that because you can't take everything in the book of Acts and say, this is exactly what I'm supposed to do. 
because this is what God did. And so you're working in different time periods and different circumstances. So the book of Acts tells the story of how Christ begins to build his church. He lays the foundation of his church through the apostles and prophets who Ephesians 2.20 tells us laid the foundation. He chooses his disciples. He dies. He gives them the gospel. He dies. He was buried, rose from the dead. And then at his ascension, sends them out to proclaim that gospel with all authority, delegated to them to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And the book of Acts tells the story about how that happens. And so you have this, this fledgling church in Acts 6. The gospel is, is being proclaimed. All right, we have one. There you go. So I didn't misinform you. Thank you, Tim. Um, you have the book of Acts telling how that, that's, that's taking place and unfolding. And, and yet, while it tells the story that not everything is repeatable, what do I mean by that? Well, there's nowhere in the epistles, nowhere in you know Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Timothy, these letters that tell us what to do. Um, almost all of Paul's letters are theology, theology. This is who Christ is. This is the salvation. This is whatever doctrine. And then somewhere in the letter, Paul will say, therefore, live this way, do this. Romans, chapter 1 through 11, doctrine, explanation. Romans 12, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, therefore, live this way. Now, do this. Don't do that. So you have prescription, um, commands, direction. And these are normative for the church. This is what we're supposed to do. Paul will even say in, in letters like, like to the Corinthians, I have, uh, I have no other command given in any other church, meaning what I'm saying is normative for the church. So... Um, you have that happening. But we're not commanded anywhere in any of those epistles to cast out demons. We're not told anywhere in any of those epistles to you know, send out uh, you know, fancy prayer hankies that heal people. We're not told anywhere to heal people. We're not told anywhere in any of those epistles to do a number of the sign gifts that you see happening. You know? uh, what we're told in the book of Acts and in the Gospels is, is what happened, how this happened, and there's a purpose in all that. So rightly dividing that, you're in a narrative passage. But that doesn't mean that you can't take principles out of it. Uh, it doesn't mean that you can't learn. Um, it doesn't mean that, that you won't find uh, some shadow or echo. Uh, maybe, the, maybe look at it this way. You remember the... Um, uh, like a coloring page or those dot to dots. So Acts chapter 6, you're connecting the dots and you're seeing a faint outline that then the epistles go back in and color in and fill in all the details. So the book of Acts tells us uh, a number of principles, principles about people who have speaking gifts and they're not to be taken away from exercising those gifts. The apostles are not to be taken away from, from prayer and, and the word to minister to tables. And then we get the command to, or, uh, the, Paul gives the, I've got Paul in my brain from Romans. The, uh, the apostles give the command to look out amongst yourselves and choose some specific men to do some serving. So you have speaking gifts and serving gifts. You have what's necessary for the church to function. But these men aren't called deacons here. These men aren't, you know, you don't get in Acts 6. There's elders and deacons. Um, and here are all the, the specific qualifications. That comes, but that comes later in 1 Timothy and in Titus. So you kind of see we're drawing the, the dot to dot here as the church is being built, as it's unfolding, and we're learning some things. God is always putting himself on display in every circumstance in the Bible, every passage, whether it's prescriptive or narrative. He's the main character in the Bible. So the first person you're looking for in a passage like Acts 6 is God. What's God revealing about himself? Then the second that you're looking for is man. Human beings are the same. So you can learn about human beings, human behavior. Um, no temptation taken you, but such which is common unto man. So when you're looking at Abraham or David or Joseph or... Ananias and Sapphira or human beings here, 
saying, my widows are being neglected. Why are you doing that? It's teaching us about mankind because we're basically the same. So God, man. And then third is redemption. The main purpose of the Bible is to re- for God to reveal himself unto the end of salvation. It's, it's unto Christ. So where does this fit in the plan of salvation, in redemption? Uh, what am I to draw from this passage that will help me see what God is doing in saving a people for himself? And I've already kind of told you that. You're in the fledgling church as the church is unfolding and, and structure is being added by needs, needs arising. So that's just an introduction to this, this Act 6. What we want to learn from it is the kind of men chosen for leadership. Now, nowhere in Acts 6, here's an, an illustration of what I just told you about how you can draw principles out. Nowhere in Acts 6 does it say, these are the kinds of men that the, that the church after the book of Acts is to choose for leadership. It doesn't say that you're to choose men full of the Holy Spirit and, and a good reputation and those kinds of things. But you see that's exactly what the church is doing and God is affirming. And then you can go later in 1 Timothy and Titus and see that's exactly the kind of men God commands to put in leadership. So now we're able to see here's an example of the kind of men that you should be, that you should strive to be, the kind of men that must be chosen for positions of of leadership And so what we're going to see in the characteristics of the men that are chosen here is the dot to dot, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, um, of good character, good reputation. And then you say, well, what does that mean in specifics? Then you'll go later as the New Testament continues to be added to. It's closed canon today. The New Testament's done. There's no new revelation today. We don't need any new revelation but chronologically, we go to 61, 62 A.D., 63, 64, uh, Timothy, Titus, and you'll find the specifics in those lists of qualifications that are given there, husband of one wife, a faithful man, so on and so on and so forth. So in this study, we're to examine this key passage, and we'll study the kind of men chosen for leadership because the passage tells us much about the kind of leadership God wants in the, in the church. And we, we mentioned the danger. It's in the local church, it is dangerous to the flock if men without dedication are chosen for ministry. Um, the kind of men that the church needs would be dedicated to a routine and have a reputation of consistency. Um, Caveat, because we can hear that and say, well, how could I ever be used of the Lord or qualified to do anything? I know my own heart. Caveat, well, when selecting men, we're not looking for perfection, but we are looking for direction. So in fact, we want to elevate men who admit their weaknesses and have hearts that are pliable to the truth of God's word. Paul told Timothy, let your progress be evident before all. And Timothy's a pastor. That's really encouraging for the elders of this church, for me. (laughs) Paul told Timothy, let your progress as a pastor, progressing in sanctification, let your growth be evident before the whole church. Um, What does that imply? You're not there yet. And that it's a good it's it's an okay thing not to be there yet. You know, there is this uh self-inflicted pressure in leadership in the church, maybe in you as in your homes, in your work, as a father, uh grandfather, whatever it be, is to present this idea that I've got it all together, I'm up here, I don't show any weakness, because then the people below me won't follow me. If people figure out what I really am, they wouldn't even listen to me on Sunday. If my wife knew that, you know, when I'm correcting her or shepherding her in some area, if she knew I had that same struggle, being angry or proud or whatever it is, then then she might not listen to me. It's exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. Um, 
what they need to see is you admitting your weakness and then repenting of that weakness. Okay, we're not talking about some cathartic event where the world says you just tell everybody how bad you are and leave it there. What we're talking about is you acknowledge and then you're repenting. That's what they need to see. Confession and repentance. You're applying the gospel and you're modeling then for them how to apply the gospel to your life, how to grow in sanctification, how to ad- confess and then, and then repent, which is what Paul's telling Timothy. As a pastor, as a leader in the church, you're not giving some, I'm up here, but really, here's my own private life. I struggle like any other person. Uh, you know, I battle sin like any other person. But I'm not going to show anybody that. Paul's saying just the opposite. I mean, think about it. When you read about David and being a, after a, man, a man after God's own heart, you're encouraged by that, right? I'm encouraged by that. I say, I want that kind of heart. Uh, and then I start thinking, wow, do I have that kind of heart? I mean, what does that mean? A man after God's own heart, you know, and I read about David and, and being a king, and I think, wow, I don't know that I, I, I could actually measure up to that. And then I read about David and Bathsheba and how David fell, and I'm grieved over him falling, but I'm encouraged by the fact that, uh, you know, David's fall and then David's restoration, same thing with Peter. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. I think, yeah, that's, that's what I want to do. I want to declare that, that the Lord is the Christ, the Son of God. Um, and then I find Peter denying the Lord, even cursing to disassociate himself with Christ. And then I'm encouraged that Jesus foresaw that and said, when you're restored, strengthen the brethren. And then the Lord restores Peter. Um, progress is helpful because we're all the same. We're not the Lord. Uh, we're sinful people. Um, the, the depth of their conviction must be obvious, though. So there is some substance. There's got to be some spiritual concrete in your life uh, before the weight of others is placed upon you. So we're not talking about perfection, but it's a dangerous thing to put untested people in leadership. There does have to be some drying of the concrete before you start putting some weight on it or other people are going to sink into that muck of your life. And then if they stay there too long, you know, they can, they can, get, uh, they can get entrapped in it. And it's a messy thing for both you and, and them. So let not many of you desire to be teachers uh, because there's a stricter judgment. Um, don't clamor for the limelight or leadership too early. Uh, don't be a novice, um, meaning a newly planted uh, tree sprout because you can uh, fall into the condemnation of the of the devil not everyone will be chosen for leadership but every churchman every man should aspire for these same character qualities of the the chosen elders and deacons they're just chosen as models um, but all of these things should be in your life so we talked through how the church grew and how they were how they chose specific men And I think we left off at number four. The early church listed the names of men chosen for leadership. Um, Why do you think? You think about how many people. We've got estimates of 20,000 people. Are these the only leaders in the church? No? No? You know, that many people, they're natural leaders, they're apostles. So why list these men? Why give their names? Any thoughts? Reality. Okay. All right. Well, as I said, they're giving you, the, the book of Acts is giving you this outline of, 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 of leadership. Stephen in particular, though, in this list, these are men that you're going to find coming up in the book of Acts later. So, in fact, in Acts 7, 
one of these men, the first man on the list, um, let me see if I can see without glasses. It stinks getting old. I know some of you are way older and you're already there, but I'm coming through the door and I don't like it. Um, They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, um, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, Parmenius, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Think of all the little details that are there. It leads with Stephen. It names these men because we are supposed to know them. And then it says, Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. And you're going to see in the very next chapter of Acts 7 how this man was full of faith in the Holy Spirit and actually what's that mean, what that means. So it's purposeful uh, you know, in, in that way. The early church listed the names of men chosen for ministry to see what kind of men uh, are to be set apart. What's, what are they modeling in their, their own lives? These men were not chosen for the things that society reveres. So if you were going to choose a leader, what would, what, what would you look for? You say, well, it depends on the task. Depends on what well, you know what it what it might be, um, and the world has to do that all the time. Uh, we just made a big deal out of um, uh, coaches, football coaches. You know, how do you pick a NFL coach? Well, you've seen some of them that were bad picks, and some of them that were good, and. Um, the world has to do this all the time. Who are we to choose? What, what are we to look for? The warning here is to be careful what, what the world exalts and what seems like would work well and maybe does work well in the world doesn't always correlate into the church. You're not always to pick those men in, into the church. So you would say business skills, speaking skills. There are people that are powerful orators. Um, can speak really greatly, but they're proud, they're, they're, they're wicked. Administrative leadership or the ability to be strategic in logistics. Think of the amazing things that are accomplished in the world. I just read an article, I don't know, uh, about Elon Musk. And the article was talking about, you know, all of these, I mean, the dude's, you know, crazy smart and think of all the things that he's accomplished. But this was an article about how many kids he's got floating around in the world. His three marriages and, you know, twins by somebody in the company. And he's just, he's, he's got, got, his life's bankrupt. It's horrible. Um, but man, Elon Musk is super smart, very strategic. Would you put him in leadership in, in the church? He said, well, no, I wouldn't put him in leadership, you know, in, in the church. Well, why? You know, so, example, people with leadership or management skills, and yet that's what the church often does, especially in modern American church. Uh, we look for marketers. We look for people that can turn a phrase. We look for people that can present themselves well, um, can speak well, um, People that will tell you what you want to hear. You've probably got a number of names coming to your mind, like Andy Stanley or Joel Osteen or some of the others. Is it bad to have any of these things and be in the church? No, not bad to have any of these things. But they rank really, 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 really low. They're like they're like an, an, the after effect. They're not necessary. There's nothing on this list that's necessary to be a good elder, to be a good pastor. Does the Lord, often through providential circumstances, allow some of these other things to develop? Sometimes. But you can have all these things and not have humility, and you're worthless to the church. You can have all these things and not have a godly life, and you're a detriment to the church. Um, I used to think that you could have both of these. Like in one hand, you got the business skills, and in the, and in the other hand, 
you, you've got the, you know, the, the, the godly life, the, you know, the, the, the church. And, and what, what I've come to, to understand better, probably in maturity, is that you can have these skills, but they have to die. It, it can't be you have these in one hand and, and the Lord in the other hand. These have to die, and the Lord has to be your primary purpose. And then God can actually resurrect and use some of those skills that you learned. But if you got them in both hands, like you're depending upon this and you're depending upon the Lord, you're going to end up relying on the natural man before, before the spiritual. So I don't want to say these are bad. They're not. I don't want to say that they're unuseful. I look at my own life. I was in business, handling money, leading you know, co- company, those types of things. Has the Lord redeemed some of that, and has it been useful at times in, the, in, in church life? Sure, but that had to die. I'm not depending upon any of that. I'm depending upon a godly life, the Word of God. Those things have to be there, and then the Lord can actually bring those, those other things along like a, like a train. You know. uh, but that's, it's the caboose. I mean, it's, it's, it's not important. You don't have any of these things, you can be a dynamic uh, servant of the Lord, and the Lord use you in a great way. You can have all these things and not have Christ, and not have uh, faith, and and you're you're going to lead a church into the ditch. Um, sidebar: James three, James four, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of of God, uh, and the primary marker that summarizes all of that in James four is humility. God gives grace to the humble. All right. Stephen is first listed, and he's described as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he's full of grace and a man full of power. Look at verse 8. We had not read this. Stephen, full of grace and full of power, was performing great wonders and signs among all the people. So now it's going to tell the story of how Stephen is accused of blasphemy, and he preaches and then dies. He's martyred. Man full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace, and full of power. And each man, each of these men uh, would have a measure of these. But Stephen is separated out at first in the list, likely because we later see more about Stephen's faith, how, how those words are fleshed out in Stephen's life in, in Acts 7. And we should aspire to be the kind of man who comes to mind when our church considers these qualities. It's really just the opposite of what's natural and what, what you think, what you see in the world, what your flesh would, would, would want. You want to be in leadership in the church, you know, shrink into the shadows and be a servant. Um, pushing yourself to the front uh, is is a is a way to get skipped over you know by the Lord. We should want to cultivate these things in our lives for the Lord and then God will end up using us. So a reputation for being available and ready to meet needs. A reputation for being available and ready to to meet needs. Um, talk to me about that one. What does that mean? What does that what would that look like? What's the opposite of that? You know, Pastor, I have this specific skill. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm really good at prophecy. Uh, I've studied that my whole life. And so if you ever need anybody to teach prophecy, then, then I'm your man. Is that a man who is available and ready to meet needs? One, maybe one specific need, which is his hobby horse. <laughs> what this looks like is a man who says, I'm at church, I'm available, I'm here, and whatever you need me to do, I don't care what it is. Nothing beneath me, nothing above me. I'm just a man who's available to God, and I'm ready to meet needs. Um, and it's people work. It's church work. It's whatever needs to be done. That's your attitude. It doesn't matter. Um, if you're in ministry, you know, I only do the preaching and the praying. But I don't want to do the counseling stuff. I don't get messy with people. 
Correction people that say that. You know what? I've got I've got too many too many preaching engagements to actually study. So I need a sermon team who actually prepares my sermons for me, and then I read it off of a teleprompter. But I'm really good. Let me use my gift. I'm telling you, this is true. I use my my speaking gift. That's what God gave me. But I'm not. I don't have this study part. You see how dangerous that is. Not only the guy, whoever's doing that, the guy is, is robbing himself of, of his gift. The gift that you get is not what you get out of the pulpit. The gift that you get is what you get out of the study, being in the Word of God, because it's getting in you and transforming you. That's your gift. What does God give? What, what's the corn that you, you, know, you get to eat as, a, as an ox treading? It's while you're treading the corn. Um, known to be sacrificial. Are you, are you a giver? And I don't just mean monetarily. Of course, that would fall into that category. You're sacrificial. You know, or are there, there are only circumstances in which you'll give your time? And only, I, I, you know, I've got this and I've got that. And, you know, or I've got to make sure that I get recognition or acknowledgement. I'll give my time if I get this position. Or I'll give my money if I get a name on a building. Or... If I get a giant tax write-off or, or whatever, what, what if you got none of those things? What if the people didn't even know you gave your time or you did anything? Would you do it? And this is not just saying, would you give? Would you be sacrificial where it hurts? Um, you're giving up of your own self, your own pleasures, your own benefits, to meet someone else. Are you known to be that way? Um, you, when, when I just think of somebody who's sacrificial, does somebody come to your mind? That's what he's talking about. It, it's so modeled in your life. It's just, a, it's just a, what people know about you. Uh, interested in being used by God to the max wherever they're gifted. Um. I, I, I like this lesson because it reminds us that that we're studying the kind of men chosen for leadership and not everyone will be chosen for leadership, but this is what we're to aspire to. So like this one, interested in being used by God to the max wherever you're gifted. Look, I'm in um, a network of, of extremely gifted men with expositors, seminaries. And some of those men are way more gifted than I am in certain areas. Um, I have gifts. They have gifts. And I'm interested in being used to the max in whatever gifts the Lord has given me. Uh, Matt Wainmeyer, I couldn't even shine that brother's shoes whenever it comes to exegetical chops and otherwise. And I am thankful that Matt has, you know, those, those gifts. I don't have to be him. I don't have to try to, to uh, you know, to reach wherever he's at. What this tells me is that I have a desire to be used to the max and however the Lord has gifted me. Um, and you should be desirous of the, the same things. You, you exalt others' gifts. You give thanks for the gifts of others. You're not jealous of the gifts of others. You're not intimidated by the gifts of others. You want to use your own gifts wherever those are. And you don't have all the gifts. There's a reason that God designed the church with a plurality of elders because he didn't put everything in one man. God's anointed the senior pastor, the Baptist Pope, everything is invested in that one man. You don't find that in the New Testament. You find uh, someone who's out front, you, but you find a plurality of men. Why? Because that one man has weaknesses. He has gifts, but he has weaknesses, and he needs other men. The church needs a plurality of men, and when you put all those gifts together of humble men utilizing those gifts, it's a powerful force in the church and in the lives of, of others. So these men, these are men whose testimony was, uh, was authentic. It's not in question. They don't serve to cover up others' deficiencies, uh, up, to cover up deficiencies. 
I just give my life away in this specific area to actually cover uh, what I'm unwilling to, to shore up in other areas. They don't serve to placate a guilty conscience. They have a t- sound testimony of conversion. They have lives that bear the mark of the fruit of the Spirit. What does that mean? What's the fruit of the Spirit? In Galatians 5. And it's fruit of the Spirit. So it's, it's fruit that the Spirit of God is producing in you because the Spirit's in you and you're marked by that fruit. Is there anything I have to do with that? Yeah. That passage says keeping in step with the Spirit. You're lining up like a soldier marching to the, the cadence of the Spirit. The Spirit, what's the cadence of the Spirit? What's the call of the Spirit? You ever see the Marine Corps guys, you know, doing their, doing their marching, they're jogging to stay, to stay in step. There's, there's someone giving the cadence. That's the Spirit of God. What is the cadence of the Spirit of God? Not little ditties that the Marine Corps does. It's the Word of God. The Spirit of God's voice, God's voice is the Word. And the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, is aligning your life with the Word. So the Word has to be in you. It has to be putting, you're putting it in you, and you're keeping in step with it. You're aligning yourself with it. Anything out of conformity, you're bringing it into conformity. And when that happens, then the Spirit produces His fruit in your life. And when that happens consistently, then your life becomes marked by the fruit of the Spirit. And now you're able to be set apart to leadership and specific tasks. Isn't that clear? I mean, it's just Bible. And that's the kind of person that you want to set apart. Have a good reputation at home, at work, as husbands, fathers, and in the local body of believers. Again, not perfection that you're progressing in all of these areas, what does it mean to have a good reputation at home? When we're looking for a leader, do we go talk to men's wives and say, um, how are they at home? Are they perfect? And anyone who says, well, first of all, you'll never find a wife who will say that. If she is, you, you know right there there's a problem. Um. What would we want to hear if we did that? My husband solves his problems by the word. My husband repents. My husband confesses. My husband, whenever he does wrong, he's quick to turn. My husband's kind. My husband has the aroma of Christ. He brings the aroma of Christ in the home, um, not the world. Now you start thinking about that, somebody actually asking your wife those questions, what she would say, that's convicting, isn't it? Um, that's a good reputation. Um, again, if you would ask Tracy and she would just be completely unguarded, I believe she would say some of those things. And if you would ask her, well, well in what ways does he sin? She would have a list. But she would also say, but he's quick to repent, which is the reputation that that you want. You're not Jesus, nor are you called to be in this life. You are called to be. You won't reach that. But the reputation is the gospel is working itself out in in your heart and in your life. Same at work. Um, Are you a good employee? Uh, do you work under the Lord? Do you give yourself? Do, do, do other coworkers think that about you? Or do they think you're a lazy man? Cutting corners. Blame shifting. Um, fathers. Um, spanking your children out of anger. Yeah, I did that. And then I went back and said... I spanked you out of anger because you inconvenienced me and I need to beg your forgiveness. Um, You're modeling for them and then again. And in the local body of believers, what's your reputation in the church? Think about this reputation, not out there in social media land where nobody really knows who you are except what you want to present them. 
your reputation in these closest, the close areas of life where you can't hide. And think in the home, at work, husband, father, and in a local body of believers. And one of the reasons people don't immerse themselves in the church or give themselves in, in intimate conversation to their wives or to their children is because they want to hide and they don't want to be exposed. It's just the opposite. Be exposed and confess. That's what's going to motivate you to, to, to get better. Um, don't cover your sin. Stephen and other men had recently witnessed the fates, fate of Ananias and Sapphira, and they, didn't, uh, they did not leave the congregation after the Lord's discipline. Now think about that. Fear came over the whole congregation. These are the kind of men who are not driven to run away in fear. Their fear fueled more sober living and reverence for God. They had a healthy fear of the Lord and a seriousness about life in the church. Is it... I'll tell you why I'm laughing in a minute. Is it not a sober, sobering thing whenever church discipline happens? Somebody's name is read before the congregation and you're to pursue them. I'm not laughing about that. That's a serious moment. But can you imagine what it would be like when church discipline happens and a person would stand up here and they say, I repent or they do whatever and they're lying and they're struck dead right in our midst? They fall out right here in the floor. And people have to carry him out. You think that strike fear in your heart? That happened with two people in the church. It's not normative. Why did God do that then? Because the church is forming and it's so important that people have the fear of the Lord and the church is not derailed. God's rescuing his church in this moment and establishing it going forward. That doesn't happen today. Um, but there are ways that we're, we're struck with fear. And what happens when, 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 when you are a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit and you sit where discipline is actually brought public, what does that do? You, you don't duck and cover. You say, you fear, and I don't ever want that to happen. So what do I got to do in my life? Well, what areas of my life are out of order? What do I need to repent of, Lord? What do, what do I need to submit to, Lord? That, that, that's what's going on in your heart. And these men didn't run whenever that happened. They had a healthy fear of the Lord and a seriousness about life. That's what a, a sober-minded man means. You ever met somebody that's just carefree and, yeah, let's just do this, let's do that, and nothing really matters, yeah, you know, forget about life. I mean, in one sense, you're kind of attracted to a guy like that. He, you know, he throws caution to the wind. We make movies about those people. They don't have any responsibilities. They live life to the fullest. You know, they're climbing a mountain one day, riding a bull the next day, whatever it is. This is great. This is cool. That's not the kind of man you want to model your life after. In fact, that's not even the kind of man that you want to, you want to spend a lot of time with because that's not life. That's not a sober-minded life. That's not a life that, that is a life that's serious before the Lord. You have a limited amount of time. It's the day and night's coming when no man can work. There is eternity that's happening and you have every second. There's a grain of sand slipping through the glass and you don't even know when, when God's going to pop the bubble and all the sand's coming out. You don't have any idea. You're not promised another day, another moment. It's the devil's tool to distract men from doing what God called them to do which is work for the Lord because there's coming a time when you can't work for the Lord and then it's done. And in unbelievers like that, they're keeping, Satan's keeping them from, from salvation in and of itself. Be a sober-minded man. Be serious about life. It doesn't mean you can't have fun and enjoy the gifts of the Lord, but if that's all you live for, you've got a problem. You're not a serious-minded man, a sober man. You're not a man that the Lord can actually use. Um... You want that substance in your life. That's where you're aligning yourself with the purposes of God, the church, the Bible, what's important. And notice, the whole congregation approved of these men. This is not private uh, only. 
it's private first, and then it becomes public, and then it becomes a reputation. So the Lord begins to work these things in your heart. and You begin to practice them in private. Then you start practicing them with your wife and your kids in front of them, and then it becomes more public. These things start marking your life in the church, and people begin to notice that, and then it becomes a reputation. You're a man known as a servant. You're a man known as whatever it it is. I still run into people. It's been a while because I haven't been in those circles. But I had been saved 15 years. I was already a pastor. And I would run into people that did not, hadn't seen me since college. And there's this awkward moment where, hey, how you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? You know, what, what are you doing with your life now? Well, I'm a pastor. And there's this, this, this stunned silence or, yeah, right. No, really, what are you doing with your life? You know, oh, I'm a pastor. What? To my shame, the reputation of my life is very different. I don't want that reputation anymore. I relish telling them that I have a new reputation. Now, they don't know that new reputation because they haven't seen me before the old one. But everybody around me knows that I'm not the man that I used to be. And that's what you want. That's a reputation. You want that kind of of reputation, and the whole congregation approved these men. The whole congregation will not affirm men with a pattern of weakness. Again, in these areas that would cause them to fall, it's not perfection, but, but these things that must be there, or it would be bad for you if you're put in leadership, or bad for the church. Just as Third John 12, these men are those whom the whole congregation would testify of their character. Stephen's described as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. How did they know? How would we know a man filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we know? Well, he's pliable under the influence of the Spirit, meaning he yields to the Word, he's soft to the truth. He strives in tough areas to be changed by the truth and obeys it. He investigates ways to obey and learns new ways every day to please the Lord. He's not marked by the opposite of the Spirit. He's not marked by grumbling or disputing against God. He walks by the Spirit. He keeps in step with the Word. He doesn't grieve the Spirit. And he's a man full of faith and likely doesn't know it about himself. He's humble. He's uncommonly mature. He's a man of wisdom. He knows how to uh, be discerning in the application of truth, which is what wisdom is, skill in applying the Bible to life. And he can at times be intimidating to others. Um, and Stephen was full of grace and power, performing great wonders and signs among the apostles. That's what authenticated them. What For us today, we don't use signs and wonders. They authenticated that these are Christ's apostles. Now think about this. The Old Testament, the church age has dawned. These people are going out preaching Jesus, and they're being given revelation. What would, how do I know? Well, God designed it to where there would be sign gifts that would authenticate these men are speaking the truth of God, and they couldn't be faked. These were understanding the gospel in your own language. These were miraculous things. Same thing that the Messiah had. An echo of that is seen in the apostles. To authenticate, these are my apostles and these are my prophets and they're laying the foundation and they're receiving revelation. What do we use today to authenticate men of God? It's not signs and wonders. We look to see whether their lives line up with the revelation that's already given. That's how we authenticate them. How do you authenticate a pastor? How do you authenticate? We don't say, well, at Cornerstone Baptist, where Pastor Brian used to be, how many people did he raise from the dead? Uh, how, how, how many languages, different languages, was he able to speak in the Spirit? They're not doing that. They want to know, does my life line up with 1 Timothy 3 and Titus? 
That's how they're authenticating whether I'm a man of God. Do I understand the scriptures? Do I apply them to my life? That's how you authenticate a man who's full of grace and power today. Conformity to the to the word of God. It's how much of the Bible is in you and then how much comes out in your thinking and in your decisions and in your actions. And we learn that you can see this even through the life of Stephen. In Acts 7, 2-53, while he talks about he's doing uh, in Acts 6, 8, you know, full of grace and he's performing signs and wonders, the emphasis in Stephen's life is not the signs and wonders. It just says he's doing signs and wonders because that's what he's supposed to do as an apostle. But then Luke spends a whole chapter repeating verbatim the sermon that Stephen preaches, his testimony. And what's coming out in his testimony? 25 passages directly quoted from memory from the Old Testament. How many passages from the Old Testament can you quote from memory? Stephen loved the church and he memorized large portions, loved the truth, memorized large portions. In his defense, these passages were easily brought to his mind. He used them in context with correctness. And all of us can learn Scripture through repetition and application to one level or another. We, we remember things. And no one with a mind renewed in God's Word by the power of the Holy Spirit cannot call to memory the passages that they have allowed to indict or correct their hearts. This is not just reading it and allowing the water just to wash over top of you. This is allowing the Word of God to indict you and correct you this is handling it unto an end, which is to be changed by it. I love this, top of page 294. Where there is trench work in a man's life, it becomes familiar ground to recite and teach. How do you learn? Um, trench work. If you dig a ditch or a trench or you build something with your own hand, you spend a lot of time doing something to where it's your work, you can recall it pretty easily, can't you? Because you, it's been your baby. You've taken it from start to finish. Where you have spent that kind of time with the Word and applying it to your life, it's familiar ground to you. You can recite it and you can actually teach it. We love scriptures more when we see the fruit that it produces in our lives. Passages embedded in Stephen's heart, treasuring God's word in our hearts causes us not to sin against him, which is what Psalm 119 verses 9 through 11 is talking about. And that shows up in the ultimate result of his sanctification, Stephen even in death, he's so full of faith and curled by the Spirit, he wants to follow Christ's example on the cross where he asked the Father to forgive those who crucified him. And here's the punchline. Are we, as men, are we aspiring to be like Stephen, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit? Consider your public testimony. Would you be chosen from among the others in the church for your godly character and integrity if you were then there? Are we known by all as being sacrificial <clears throat> or free spirits? Practical test. Number three, if we're missing from an event or a week at church, would those in the body find it strange or uncommon? The church gets... Uh, blow back in a bad rap when somebody who's not who doesn't who's not even a good part of the body let's say that person only comes on sunday morning and hits and misses and then you'll hear them criticize the church well i i missed for 3 weeks in a row and nobody even called me nobody even knew i was gone well you know what the question is why didn't they know you were gone they didn't know you were gone because you're not really even part of the body. You're hitting and missing. You're sucking something from it and then leaving. If you were so immersed in the body and giving yourself to Christ in that way, of course people would know whenever you're gone because you're so part of the body. You're natural. 
Now, of course, it's not an excuse for a church to be aloof and not care about people, but we don't have that kind of church. We have a church that cares about people and loves people and embraces people. You see how easily Satan can turn things around, or heart can turn things around and actually blame God for our own failure? If we're missing, do people notice? Are we on task? Different seasons bring change. But are we the kind of men who adapt to pressures and strive to be consistent despite the pressures? And if we're not, we need to confess and take it to the Lord to grow our faith. Man, what a great lesson. Let's pray. Father, I am so thankful for these men that are here today. The evidence that they're striving to be these kind of men is they're here. They got out of bed. Um, Regardless of the struggles in all of our hearts, we're here and we're seeking you. And you'll honor that. And I am thankful that you did that today by reminding us of your truth. And yet we would pray more, Lord. Make us more like you. As we listen today, uh, things that struck our hearts, struck a chord with us, Keep us from just walking away with just conviction. Help us to walk away, to write that down, to make note of that. Put it in our phones and say, okay, here's this one thing that I'm going to pray about this week and ask you how to change. If there's some sin that has been brought up that we need to confess, may we do that quickly to others, to you, uh, and then model the gospel. Thank you for men. Thank you for the models that we have before us. Make all of us that way in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, brothers, have a great day.